Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18. I'm going to read to you the whole chapter, and then we're going to break it down. A lot of neat stuff we're going to get into tonight. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 1 through 32. It says, The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? And here's the proverb. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully, he is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. If he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, though he himself did none of these things, who even eats upon the mountains, deviles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, lends at interest, and takes profit, shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon his head or upon himself. Now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father had done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules and walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is right, just and right, and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The souls who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. And the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, nor rather that he should turn from his way and live. But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered for the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die." Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin, 
Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. Now there's a lot here, isn't there? But I can't wait to have us take some time to unpack it. There's a lot going on. As we go back to chapter 18, verse 1, we're going to see in this chapter, God begins by clearing up a misconception about himself. Let's say that to you again. He begins this whole thing by clearing up a misconception about himself. You see, in judging the nation, many were saying this. This is what they were saying, that God wasn't just, that he was killing the innocent because of the wicked. That's what they were saying. In verse uh, 1, verse 2, you see where it says, what do you mean by repeating this proverb? He's not talking to Ezekiel. He's talking to the nation because that word you in the, in the Hebrew is plural. So for us in the South, he would have said, what do y'all mean? By repeating this proverb. Actually, I've told you before, I preached one time in a real deep part of the South, and they said y'all was not plural. Because you, could, you can say y'all to a singular person, but they say all y'all is plural. So, so this is all y'all. What do all y'all mean by repeating this proverb? And this is the proverb that they were saying in Israel. The proverb was, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, but the children's teeth were set on edge. In other words, the children were being affected by the father's sins. And they were saying that God was judging the whole nation of Israel because of certain people's sins. Not everybody had sinned, but as you're going to see in just a little bit, there were some things that God had said that had given them that picture. But God stops them and says, I don't want you to be saying that proverb anymore in Israel. That's not the truth. So what I want to do is show you from the scriptures that that's not true of God. They were saying God's judging everybody, but everybody didn't do all this stuff. Only certain people did all this stuff. So why is he judging the whole nation? Why is he wiping everybody out? Why is he clearing the whole land out? He's not fair. He's not just. Well, does the scripture say that God will judge and punish the righteous for the wicked sins? The Bible never said that. Let me show you the exact opposite. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 24. This is back when the nation of Israel is going into the promised land. Listen to the law of God. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Look at verse 16. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Yet at the same time, don't you remember when the nation of Israel went into the promised land and Achan and his family stay, stole some of the gold? And kept some of the treasures from Jericho when God said not, not to. The whole family was put to death. And you can see how some would say, well, he, he's punishing the kids for the dad's sins. What does the law say? The law said children should not be put to death because of their father's sin. That is not who God is. So, by the way, if those children were put to death, it appears to be because of Achan's sin. What does the scripture tell us why they were put to death? For their own sin. The Bible is very clear. Go to 2 Kings chapter 14. 2 Kings chapter 14, look at verses 1 through 6. It says, In the second year, 2 Kings 14, verse 1, In the second year of Joash, the son of Joahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoiadin of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not like David his father. In other words, he was good, but not that good. 
He did, all in, he did in all things as Joash, his father, had done, but the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. And as soon as the royal power was firmly in his hand, he struck down his servants who had struck down the king, his father. But he did not put to death the children of the murderers, according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord, com Lord commanded, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers, but each one shall die for his own sin. Again, very clear in the annals and the history of the nation of Israel. God had already said, children shall not be put to death because of their father's sins. Each one should die for their own sins. Go to Genesis chapter 18. Let's go way back. You remember God visits Abraham and he tells him, actually it's interesting. I love how God says, shall I hide from my friend what I'm about to do? As he was leaving there after telling him and Sarah that they're going to have a child this time next year, he then starts making his way with those other angels to Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy it because of their wickedness. Of course, as you know, Abraham knows he's got relatives in that town. And in Genesis chapter 18, verses 22 through 33, listen to the conversation between God and, Mo, uh, and, sorry, and Abraham. Genesis 18, verse 22. I'm sorry, and I mean 19. Nope. Uh, never mind, it is, it is 18. I just was in Exodus, and I'm going, wait a minute. It's not, it's, why, why is it not marked right? Genesis 18, verse 22. So the men, men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked, far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, who am I but dust and ashes? Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. In other words, there's forty-five righteous. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I'll speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, not, let not the Lord be angry, and I'll speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way, and when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So what, how many people were left in the city? Do we know that were righteous? Less than 10. But look at the conversation between Abraham and God. God, I know you. It's not like you to judge and to destroy the, wick, the righteous with the wicked. Would you, you, you wouldn't do such a thing. Now, in this instance, God said in that city, that instance, if there are 10 people that are righteous, I won't destroy the city. Of course, God already knew, and he knew what number he could get to and keep making that promise. But remember Exodus chapter 14 we looked at last time we were together. In Exodus 14, he says, if he's decided to destroy a city, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they'll be spared because of their righteousness, but it won't stop. Don't, don't turn this into, if there are you know, at least 10 righteous, God won't destroy a city. No, that, that's, that's not what this passage is teaching. But in that instance, that's what he was saying. But Abraham knew the heart of God. So with just these few passages, let me remind you that God had already shown the nation of Israel his nature. 
Was it his nature to judge the wicked, sorry, the righteous with the wicked? Not was, was not his nature, never had been. But what had been going on? They had been saying this proverb in Israel. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So we're going to deal with tonight. Why? Where did they get this idea and why? Now we're going to deal with the why first. Because I think the where would make a whole lot more sense if we understand the why first. So the two questions I want to deal with is, okay, when the scripture clearly teaches that is not who God is, why did they get that misconception that he would destroy the, wicked, the righteous with the wicked? And where did they get that misconception? The why is found in Job chapter 40. Go to Job chapter 40. In Job chapter 40, God shows up and he's speaking to Job. And look at verses 1 through 8. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once. I will not answer twice, but I'll proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Did you catch what God was saying to Job? Because during Job's life, even though he started off saying, hey, naked I came into the world, naked I'll return. If you read the book of Job, he starts making accusations about the unfairness of God. And that it's not fair that God can make all these judgments and do all these things, and then man can't talk to him. Man can't have a face-to-face. -face. If I could have a face-to-face, -face, I could defend myself. But, well, how fair would that be? I mean, come on, he's God and I'm me. And he keeps accusing God of being unjust to make himself look righteous. Did you hear what God says? Are you going to condemn me to make yourself look better? Folks, let's be honest, that's in all of us. That's in all of us. You ever noticed in your kids, when you point out something they're doing wrong, what's their inherent action? Did you see my brother? Did you see my sister? They want to point out what they're doing wrong to make themselves look a little better, and sometimes they might even point at you. But you said... And they want to make mom and dad look bad so that they look better. By the way, that goes all the way back to the garden, didn't it? I mean, here Adam says, wow, look at this. She's bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. God, thank you for this woman. She's like me. I'm no longer alone on this planet. Oh, this woman you gave me. Lord, I was, you know, I was cool all by myself, behaving myself. But if you hadn't made this woman, you understand? Of course, what does she blame? She blames the snake and so on. Folks. The reason why the nation of Israel was saying God's unjust, he's judging the righteous with the wicked, is they were wanting to make themselves feel better and look better by making him look less. Now, let's get the idea, though. That's, that's the why. But let's go and take a look at where they got this misconception. Go to Exodus chapter 20. They had taken, and I'm going to give you just a few, some things that God had said and they twisted him. Go to Exodus chapter 20, look at verses 1 through 6. God had made some statements, and they took them and twisted them. Exodus chapter 20, look at verses 1 through 6. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the, to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of thousands who love Sorry, thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Did you see what he said? I'm a jealous God, and I what? How does he word it? I visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations who hate me. You can see how they might twist that and say, well, that means the children are going to be punished for what the fathers did. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the consequences of the father's decisions will affect the children. Have you ever thought about the fact that Adam and Eve sinned? affected their children in a way you might not have ever thought about? Did the children ever get to see the garden? Children never get to see the garden. They never get to live in the Garden of Eden because of mom and dad's choices. And folks, let's be honest. When we do, as parents, make wrong choices, our children are affected. But God's not saying, I'm going to punish the children for the sins of the father. He never said that. He just said, the decisions of the parents will be carried on. By the way, thank God for Jesus who breaks that curse, isn't it? Oh, go to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Remember when Moses asked to see God's glory? And God says, I'll tell you what, I'll give you what you can handle. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock, put my hand over you, and let you see the backside of me. And God goes by in verses 6 and 7, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will no, by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generations. So here God says it again, describes himself in this way. You know what's interesting? How much people want to pull up that part and misinterpret it and misquote it, but they missed all the other verses. The Lord, God, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's whole part of him. They just ignore that part and they quickly say, look, look what he said. said it'll count, bring it on to the children. God's unjust. He punishes the kid for the sins of the fathers. That's not what the scripture's teaching because we've already seen from scripture the law said God is not that way. Oh, go to Jeremiah 15. Something God had said to these same people that God was speaking to through Ezekiel, through Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah chapter 15, look at verses 1 through 4. Jeremiah chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Then the Lord said to me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. And when they ask you, where shall we go? You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, those who are for pestilence to pestilence, those who are for sword to the sword, those who are for famine to famine, and those who are for captivity to captivity. And I'll appoint over them four kinds of destroyers, declares the Lord, the sword to kill, the dogs to tear, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. And I'll make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. So in this passage, God says, the reason I'm wiping you all out is because of what Manasseh did. 
Folks, I'm going somewhere with this, and I want you to hear me, because this is extremely important in these days. And this is the thing that came out over and over and over in our study of Revelation this past week in Massachusetts. Do you understand the importance of building your theology and your understanding of who God is from the whole of Scripture? Because I could easily take this passage right here and those two other passages I read to you, and I could convince you if you didn't know the whole Bible. I could convince you that God would make the children pay for the sins of the Father. Right? I could take those two places in Exodus and this place right here, and I could say, it's clear as day. Look at that. They're being judged for what Manasseh did. But when you use the Holy Scripture, and you use Ezekiel 18, and Deuteronomy 24, and 2 Kings, that passage we looked at, you would then come to realize what? That can't be what that's saying, because the Scripture is very clear that God will not judge the children for the sins of the Father. So we need to use the whole of Scripture to build our doctrine. That's why you've got to understand the importance in these last days especially that you spend time, not just going to Bible study. Folks, when you stand before God and He says, I gave you not only my book, I let you live in a country where you could have five or six or ten or twenty of them on your shelves at home, and I gave it to you in every kind of different translation that's easy for you to read, and I blessed you with all that. And if you stand before Him and said, well, I went every Tuesday to Bible study, it's not going to fly. You need to spend time studying the Scriptures. You know why? Because the Bible says in these last days, there's going to be doctrines taught by demons. Oh, by the way, those demons are going to be teaching them in churches. And they're going to take a verse here and a verse there, and they're going to teach things that do not match up with the whole of Scripture, and they'll convince many a people. And that's why the Bible says that the, in Ephesians chapter 4, listen closely, I'm going to go on to my soapbox here for a second. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. So that the body would take care of itself. So that the pastors would be feeding on the word, feeding the church the word, encouraging and challenging the church to use their gifts to meet each other's needs, and the body will build itself up in love as each part does its work. Oh, but I left off that whole middle section. When you let the pastors use their gifting to study and to preach and to teach and to proclaim the word, and you let the body visit in the hospitals, lead people to Jesus, and do the work of the ministry to build the body up, then we will no longer be infants tossed to and fro by every wind of teaching and cunning and craftiness of, of scheming and deceitful scheming. But as we all will grow up into the head, we'll build each other up as each part does its work. Did you catch it? What's happening is, is we've expected the pastor to be there for us. I need to talk to you, pastor. I need counseling, pastor. Someone needs to be saved, pastor. Pastor, I need this. I need that. And we expect the pastor to be Jesus for us when the scripture says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And thus pastors who love all the attention and want everybody to come to us because it makes us feel really good in our egos, we're hurting the church because we're supposed to be saying, here's what the word says. And in the book of Acts, when the church grew, there was a dispute between the widows, the Hebrew widows and the Greek widows and the daily distribution of the food and I went naturally to the pastors and said hey this is a problem and thank God for them being bold enough to say it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry the word and prayer to wait on tables you choose some people among you full of the spirit and wisdom and you let them handle that 
And you know what? If a pastor said that today, you know what they would do? They'd be fired. They'd be fired. I just want to challenge you. Stop expecting your pastor to be there for you. He's supposed to be teaching you through the word of God how to grow into Jesus so that you get closer and closer with Jesus. Exercise your gifts in the body and watch how the Lord does his work. The problem is we've expected the pastor to not only teach the word, but to also live it all out. And we sit back and we wonder why the church today is approving of things like homosexuality and saying it's okay because Jesus taught love. Well, does that match up with the whole of the scripture? Yes, God is love, but that doesn't match up with the whole of the scripture. And folks, we have got to be serious about this. So I'm going to say, leave your pastor alone, and you spend time in your word with Jesus. He came to live inside of you. And you watch what God does in your life as you, well, as you experience the whole reason why he not only saved you, but came to indwell you. I'll get off the soapbox, but I'll stay on my tippy toes. Go to Psalm 19. Psalm, sorry, Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Yeah, unfortunately, the pastors need to get in the Word too, but I'm not preaching to pastors right now. But if they were here, they'd be getting a very similar message, just in a different direction. Psalm 119. Look at verses 1 through 14. Actually, I, I take it back. I'm going to go back to Psalm 19. I could do 119 too, but we're just going to take a time. Go to Psalm 19. We'll just do that one. Psalm 19. Apologize. I'm talking to the Lord as we're going here. Look at Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaim His handiwork. Day to day, they pour out speech. Night to night, they reveal knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is what? Perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Folks, the scripture says, and we don't have time to break down this whole chapter, but look at verses 7 and following. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's sure. It's right. It's pure. It's enlightening to the eyes. It's true. And keeping them is a great reward. All I am supposed to do is feed on this and feed it to you and encourage you. Go eat for yourself. It's here. It's here. And my prayer is, is that as we come and study the word of God together, it just lights in us a hunger to go read some more and to go read some more and to go read some more. 
And don't fall prey to all the worldly thought of, well, Jim, I haven't been to seminary. I'm not able to study it like you do. Folks, first of all, you're not supposed to study it like Jim Johnson. You're supposed to study it like you. And second of all, if you think you have to go to seminary to understand the word of God, Satan's lied to you. Because the Bible says that because of Jesus coming to indwell you, when the Holy Spirit comes in, the helper, he will teach you all things. Well, I'm not really good with book learning. I think the Holy Spirit that's inside of you knows how dumb you are. <laughs> He'll show you. He'll teach you. He's been working with the remedial like me for years. And he's able to get you what he wants you to see. Folks, take God at his word and watch what he does. But we need to ask a question now. I'm not going to take the time. I'm just going to read this to you because of the time and what I want to cover in our closing uh, tonight. So let me just read to you some notes instead of going back and looking at it and reading it. God then in the verses that follow go into great, goes into great detail through Ezekiel to explain that God judges the wicked ones and the ones who live righteously will live. He gives many examples of how each one is judged for their own sin. And in verses 5 through 13, let me paraphrase it for you. Verses 5 through 13 says, If a father is righteous, but his son is wicked, the father will live, but the son will die. That's what verses 5 through 13 say. Verses 14 through 18 put it this way. If the wicked son has a son, and that son lives righteously, the grandson will live, and his father will die because of his sin. In verses 19 through 20, God then points out that they are the ones who are saying that the righteous should die for the father's sins. And because of their incorrect proverb, they were saying it, not God. Did you catch what I'm saying? Verses 19 through, 19 through 20, he says to them, you're the ones who are unjust. You're the ones, by saying this proverb that the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set at end, you're the ones who are saying the wrong thing. I never said that. You're saying it. So don't accuse me of saying it. You're the ones saying it. And then in verses 21 through 24, God goes on and shows that the state in which someone finishes his and her life, his or her life, is what God will judge them for. You go back and take a look at it later on, you'll see. Verses 21 through 24, he goes and says that the state in which someone finishes his or her life is what God will judge them for. If a righteous person turns wicked, they'll die. If a wicked person turns away from their sins to righteousness, they'll live. So now he's showing us a little bit more. It's how you end your life that God will judge. That's important because we're going somewhere. Oh, don't miss verses 23 and 32. 23 says, God asks the question, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? And though, by the way, in case you didn't know, God answered his own question in verse 32. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. Now, in verses 25 through 32, though, God wraps this all up by showing Israel that he's a merciful God who responds to repentance. And when they thought he would judge the righteous the same as the wicked, they were not only wrong about God, they were making it so that people would miss out on seeing God for who he is and turning to him for grace and mercy. Let me read this to you one more time, and we're going to start going into a study tonight in the time that we have left. God wraps up this whole chapter now in verses 25 through 32. By showing Israel that he's a merciful God who responds to repentance. And when they thought that he would judge the righteous the same as the wicked, they were not only wrong, but they were also making it that people would miss out on seeing God for who he really is and turning to him for grace and mercy. 
You see, because the heart of God was not that he wanted to judge the righteous with the wicked. His, the heart of God is what? He wants to save the wicked, that all would, be, would be, come to repentance, that all would be saved, that even if they were wicked, if they would turn from their sin, he would give them righteousness. They'd become righteous. He, that's his heart. But when they would make statements like God judges the righteous with the wicked, they were blinding people to the fact that that's not who God is. God wants everyone to be saved. So let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verses 18 through 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 18. He's just been explaining a lot of truth. And in verse 18, he says, All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ... God was reconciling who? The world to himself. By the way, there's a lot of people that try to say that Jesus died only for the elect. You can build that doctrine with a verse here and a verse there. You can't build it with the whole of Scripture. And some people say, well, all doesn't always mean all. That's true. But the world always means the world. For God so loved who? The world that he gave his only son. Look back here. Verse 19, here's the gospel. Here's the ministry of reconciliation. That in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. Here's the message. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you hear what the gospel is, folks? The gospel is not God is mad at you because of your sin. But if you will ask God to forgive you, he'll change his mind about you and give you forgiveness. That's not the gospel. The gospel is God loves you, and he has already paid for your sins by sending his son to die for you. He's reconciled you to himself by not counting your sins against you. And he's now lovingly say, if you'll receive this awesome gift, you can experience all of my love. So our message is, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to become sin. By the way, how did he become sin? Oh, he was... Good for you, Jeremy. God is a Bible word imputed to him sin. In other words, did Jesus ever sin? Then how did he become sin? God put it on him. He became sin. He hadn't done anything wrong, but God imputed it to him and gave him, made him sin. Oh, the inverse works really cool. So that we might become the righteousness of God. How do we become righteous? By doing righteous things? No, Jesus didn't sin by doing sin. God put sin on him and he became sin. For those of us who will by faith respond to this offer of salvation, God does the opposite for us. He takes the sinless life of Jesus. And even though we have done nothing righteous, he puts it on us and we become righteous. 
Isn't that cool? That's the message. Yes, sir. Just that Jesus had to accept Exactly. The gift is offered, but it has to be received. Think back to the story in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus tells a story about the man who was, was, was forgiven a gazillion billion dollars. That's what, that's, if Jesus used those numbers that he used at that day today, he would have literally said the man owed a gazillion billion. That's how big the number was Jesus used in that time. The man was forgiven this great debt. He went off, met a fellow servant who owed him a small debt. The guy said to him the same thing he said to the master. Forgive me, you know, let me pay it off. He wouldn't forgive him. Wouldn't forgive him. So what does the master do when he finds out that this guy had been forgiven the great debt? Didn't forgive. He was thrown into the jail and he wouldn't be out until he paid the last penny. Wait a minute, I thought he was forgiven. Oh, listen, the message of the gospel is very clear. The world is forgiven. Don't hear me say that everybody's going to heaven. The message of the gospel is the world is forgiven. But only those who receive it actually get to experience it. It was evidence that even though God had forgiven this guy, because he would not forgive his neighbor, he had never received that forgiveness. Folks, those of us who actually understand and have received God's forgiveness, and it's really taken root, we got no problem forgiving our brother, our sister, our neighbor, our friend. Because we know that we have been forgiven a great debt. But for those people who say that they're saved, but they won't forgive somebody, the Bible says chances are really good they never were saved. You never received that forgiveness. Because when it sinks in and the Spirit seals you, you change. You become a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And you forgive your brother because you know God's forgiven you. But if you say, well, I know God forgave me, but I'll never forgive that person. I hate to say it, folks, but you better check make sure your uh, passport's really got the visa Make sure it's really got the visa for heaven and the spirit of God's in you. All right. Now, go to John chapter 3. Look at verses 1 and following. John chapter 3, verses 1 and following. It says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from come from God, and no one can do these signs that you do unless God's with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not. By the way, for anybody that tries to say, well, I've been a Christian my whole life, verse 7 blows that up. You must be born again. You can't have always been a Christian. No marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound, but you don't know where it comes from and where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things? I love how he gets under his skin. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and hear and witness what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you of earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in who? In God. So we're going to go somewhere in the time that we have left. I want to ask you a question. For those of us on this side of the cross... Why does, God, why does this passage in Ezekiel chapter 18 seem to teach that righteousness comes from obeying the law? Have you ever noticed that as we read through it? If a man does what is righteous and he doesn't go to idols and he doesn't do all these things, and if he does do these things, he's wicked. Why does it read like righteousness comes from obeying the law? I'm sorry? Um, actually, it was. But it's a good question. He said because the salvation covenant wasn't established yet, it actually... The Bible had been talking to it all along. Jesus himself said that in Romans chapter 3, that the law and the prophets testified to the righteousness that comes through Christ. But it's impossible to the law. It's definitely impossible to obey the law. So why is he telling everybody, you want to be righteous? Keep the law. Okay, Abraham got righteousness because he believed God, but that's not the question I'm asking. The question I have is, if righteousness cannot be observed, cannot be given through obeying the law, why does God say through Ezekiel, you want to be righteous, do right things? I'm sorry? Okay, God's law is perfect, but that's not the answer to the question. You started to raise your hand? Romans 7 definitely gets into it. We're going to get into Romans 7 in just a little bit. Oh, did you hear what Peggy said? How else would they know they needed a Savior? Folks, I want you to understand something. Don't turn this message into a formula for getting people saved. There are too many people that have taken these truths that I'm about to share with you from Scripture, and they have written books that say this is the only way that people can be saved. No, I'm going to show you scriptural truth. Don't turn it into a formula. But there's spiritual truth that we need to understand. When the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus... And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus say to him? He says, keep the law. He says, keep the law. Now, go with me to um, Romans chapter 3. Look at verses 9 through 20. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Paul says in verse 9 of Romans 3, What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, No one is righteous, no, not one. But my, my Johnny's a good boy. No, he's not. He needs Jesus. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. 
There is no fear of God before their eyes. By the way, have you noticed in your Bible that it's in a different type of font and it's a different type of format? You know why? Those are all Old Testament quotes. This isn't Paul's opinion. He's just quoting through the Spirit of God, the Old Testament, which had been saying this all along. Now we know, verse 19, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes what Peggy just talked about, the knowledge of sin. Did you catch it? The reason why Jesus said, keep the law, was because the law's purpose was to show us we couldn't keep it. The why God said to Ezekiel, live righteously and you'll be okay, is because we have to get to that place where we realize, I tried and I can't do it. I need help. Now you're ready for the, what does the Bible call the message of salvation? The good news. We've got a world today full of people that don't think they need Savior. They don't think they're sinners. They think they're pretty good people. And we're trying to preach to them the good news. they got to understand the bad news. The bad news is, James chapter 2, verse 10 says, if you're able to keep the whole law, yet stumble at just one point, you're guilty as if you broke it all. Anybody kept it all? Oh, you remember the rich young ruler? He came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the law. Listen to what his answer was. I have since my youth. I always picture Jesus under his breath going, liar, that's one. But the man doesn't realize. So what does Jesus do? All he does is repackage the law. You see, remember, he had summed up the law, and the, the law, all the Ten Commandments, the, all the law into two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This sums up the law and the Proverbs. The man says, I've been able to keep the whole law. Since my youth. Jesus says, you know what? That's impressive. This should be simple for you then because I've summed it all up into two simple things. Love God with everything you got. You love your neighbors yourself. Here's what I want you to do. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. That's the neighbor part. And come follow me. If you're able to keep the whole law and love me with everything you got and love your neighbor just like that, sell everything you got. Give it to them and come follow me, dude. This is going to be awesome. What does the guy do? He goes away sad. Does Jesus chase him? No. Because the law has to do its work to make us, the Bible teaches us, and I don't have time to take you there, Book of Galatians says the law is like a schoolmaster, which brings us to Christ. Why does God in the book of Ezekiel say, be, you want to be righteous, you got to do right things? When the Bible's very clear that no one's declared righteous through doing right things? Because as we've got to all try to do right things, to realize we can't do right things, to come to an understanding of our sinfulness and our need of a Savior, and now we're ready for help from outside. And the gospel had been preached all throughout the Old Testament. You, you, you want to have some fun? Go back and look at chapter 33 of the book of Job, probably one of the first books ever written of the Bible. The book of Job in chapter 33, you will see Elihu speak the gospel. He talks about how God speaks in many different ways. And one of the ways that God speaks is he puts you sometimes on a sickbed to the point where you're ready to die, to get your attention, to draw your soul back from the pit. And then he talks in there about how the person says, oh, if there was only someone who could be my intermediary between me and God, someone who could be my ransom. And then I would say, I sinned and perverted what was right. I didn't do what was right, but he's ransomed me. And he kept my soul from going down to the pit. And I know I'll be righteous. Folks, that's the gospel. And it was written in one of the first books of the Bible ever written. 
All along throughout the Old Testament, the message of salvation has been that the only way you are righteous, the law and the prophets have been testifying it all along. The gospel didn't start with Jesus. It had began with Jesus before the foundation of the world. The gospel's always been that there's going to be an individual, a seed of the woman, who's going to crush the head of Satan. Oh, and by the way, as God kept giving us more and more pictures, he's going to come from David. He's going to come from Jesse. His name's going to be mighty God. He's going to be beaten for our transgression, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that is upon us is going to be put on him. And by his stripes, we're going to be healed. Oh, and there's going to be this one who cries out in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's going to say, they've cast lots for my clothing and all my bones are out of joint. They have pierced my hands and feet all the way through. The Bible's been showing us there is one who is going to pay for the sins of the world. And if you will, by faith. That's what the sacrifices were pointing to. They couldn't take away sin, but they kept pointing to that ultimate sacrifice. God's been showing us all along. And in those times, he sometimes says, before I can take you any further, before I can ever show you my provision for your sin, I got to first show you, you got sin. Once you get to the point where you realize you have sin, oh, just because you realize you have sin doesn't mean that you're ready yet. Because I know a lot of people that think they have sin, but they think they can take care of it. I'll just say a few Hail Marys or... Uh, I just, you know, do a few more things, a couple more good deeds. No, once you realize you have sin and that sin has separated you from God and you're in really deep trouble, now you're ready for the gospel, aren't you? So let's go see what the scripture says. I don't know if you know this or not, but not only does the law reveal our sin, we just saw in chapter 3 of Romans, verse 20, uh, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law becomes the knowledge of sin. Bible actually says in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, that the law was added so that the trespass would increase. Does anybody ever think about that? The law was added so that we would sin more. You know why? Write this down, look at it later on, because I've got a bunch we've got to cover before we close here tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, 56 says this. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says, The power of sin is the law. In other words, what fuels sin is God saying, don't do it. Y'all know what I'm talking about, don't you? You could be walking down the sidewalk and you wouldn't even think about stepping on somebody's grass unless they got a sign out there that says, keep off my grass. Now what do you want to do? Now you want to step on the grass. Where did it, Paul says that, by the way, in Romans chapter uh, 7. He said, I didn't even know what coveting was until the law said, don't covet. And then every covetous desire rose up within me and I died. Of course, then he has to deal with these questions. Is the law sin then? Is the law bad? No, the law is holy and righteous and good. But the law not only shows us we can't do it, the law actually fuels us to break it. I've told you before, when my daughter went to University of Central Florida and we were doing her orientation at the beginning of her term, she's now about to graduate, master's degree already. It's crazy how fast everything goes. But I remember when we were taking her in her orientation visit in the big student union building there at UCF, they got this beautiful painting of the Pegasus horse. And they have all these little velvet ropes all the way around it like you have at the bank. And you're not allowed to step on Pegasus. It's an unwritten but kind of understood rule. And all the students will pass it on to the others. You don't step on Pegasus until after you've graduated. Because if you step on Pegasus before you graduate, something will happen and you won't graduate. 
That's what they say. So it's like tradition. You don't, you know what I'm talking about. Thomas went there. You don't step on Pegasus. The only thing keeping you from doing it was just these little velvet ropes. And I'm thinking, I don't care. But you're not allowed. And one of the things they do when you graduate, you literally go from the arena straight to the student union and have your picture taken standing in the center of that thing because you made it. It was crazy. I wouldn't even have even thought about walking on that painting until they said, you can't. Go to Romans chapter 7. Look at verses 4 through 6. Romans chapter 7, look at verses 4 and following. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we are living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work. Did you catch how it's past tense? In our members to bear fruit for death. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we now serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Folks, God is not judging how good you did today or how good you do tomorrow, yet we still fall back into that mindset, don't we? We feel like God's mad at us because we haven't had a good week or we haven't had a good day. Folks, that's the old code. You have been born again. You've been given a new nature. Yes, we still temptation. We still struggle with sin. But... We are now to daily lay our flesh, Romans 12, 1 and 2, offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. We're to renew our minds and we're to live in the new way now through the power of the spirit of God. Because, by the way, there's only one person who ever lived the Christian life. His name is Jesus. And he's the only one that can. And he wants to do it again through you and me as we learn to yield ourselves to him. Have you, anybody ever wondered why we, once we got saved, we still got these stupid bodies under the curse that are still tempted to sin. Haven't you ever been like Paul saying, who will save me from this body of death? But I'm starting to realize as I get a little bit older why. There's many reasons, but one of the reasons why God leaves us in these fleshly bodies so that I can choose on a daily basis. I'll get right to you, Jeff. So that I can choose on a daily basis to yield myself to Jesus. I have a choice every day whether I'm going to live to the flesh or live to the Spirit. Yes, sir. Didn't you just read that in John 3.20? God's the only one who can do it. So when it happens, God gets the credit. Exactly. It's not because I'm so good. No, I've still got this body that wants to sin. But I have been made new. And when I, my righteous deeds are seen, it will be known that it has been done by God. You know what I'm talking about? I love Dick Smith. But Dick Smith is his sinful as I am, apart from Jesus, correct? And when anything good comes out of Dick Smith or Jim Johnson, you can't say, man, what a great guy Dick Smith is. Or what a great guy Jim Johnson is. Folks, be careful. Don't, don't view anybody in that way. Boy, what a great guy that guy is. Boy, he's a really good Christian. You ever heard people talk like that? He's a really good Christian. No, that's Jesus. When that stuff happens, it's Jesus. Jesus. You may not have noticed this, though. Go back to the end of chapter 18. We got four minutes. May not have noticed this, but God shows them what needs to be done in becoming righteous. 
in verses 30 through 32. And in doing so, he reminds them of some things that the prophets have already said, and he prepares them for a promise he'll give in a later chapter in this book. He says that they need to repent and turn from all their transgressions. Otherwise, iniquity will be their ruin. Then God says they need to cast away from themselves all the sins that they've committed and make for themselves a new heart and a new spirit. Do you see it there? Look at, look at verse 30. Therefore, I'll judge you, a house of Israel, everyone, according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgression that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Now, wait a minute. Is that possible? For them to cast away their sins? And for them to make themselves a new heart and a new spirit? It's not possible. Oh, Jesus does that. But listen closely. They're at this point being told, cast away your sins. Make for yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Listen closely. Every time God tells them something, he's already told them what they need to be able to do what he's saying. In Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, we looked at that today with the men that I spoke to at lunch and how the nation of Israel was in sin and God judged them and said, you're, you're guilty. And they said, well, what does he want? Does he want me to give a calf of a year old or uh, 10,000 rams or uh, 1,000 rams or 10,000 rivers of oil? Or does he want me to give the firstborn, my firstborn, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then God responds. Listen to verses, verse 8 and following. He says, he has shown you, O man, what does God require? but to act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. He's already told you. And we look today at all the places prior to that that God had already told them, I don't want sacrifice. I want you to obey me. I don't want sacrifice. I got plenty of animals. I want you to walk with me. I want you to trust me all the way through. And in this same instance, again, if you had been faithful to listen to all that God had said prior to this, when you hear those terms cast away from you all your transgressions, it would have triggered something that, sorry, Micah had said in chapter 7. Go to Micah chapter 7 real quick. Micah chapter 7. Look at verses 18 through 20. Now remember, Micah said this in the 700s. This is now already the 500s, because you're counting down toward, toward A.D., in B.C., earlier, 200 years prior to this, God had already spoken this through Micah. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Isn't that how God told us he was from the beginning? He will again have compassion on us. He will tread out our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Who's going to do it? God. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So when God says, cast away your sins, if you had been listening to what God had been saying, it would have gone, ding, I remember the prophecy in Micah. He'll cast them away. So when he says, cast away your sins, you should know to do what? Give them to him who will cast them away. Psalm, you know this, in chapter 51, verses 5 through 12, and then 16 through 17, David says, God, renew a right spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart. So they'd already heard David cry out and say, God, you're the one who has to do this. So when God says to them, 
cast away your sins, make for yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Those who have ears to hear because they've humbled themselves and said, God, what is your way of taking care of this? Would have remembered that God had already said, I'm the one that gives you a new heart. I'm the one who gives you a new spirit. I'm the one that casts away your sin. And all the way through, we don't have time, Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 12, about him being the one who bears our sin. And then, as you know, later on in Ezekiel chapter 36, maybe you don't, when we get to Ezekiel 36, he even says to them, I'm going to erase your sin. I'm going to put my spirit within you, and I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit. So, folks, what I want you to hear is this. When God says, go do something, chances are he's not wanting you to go do it. Even in the New Testament, there'll be commands of God that says, walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Put on the new self. Put off the old self. You know what I'm talking about? How do we do these things? We go to Him and we say, Lord, would you please do this work in me? I'm going to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. I'm going to take serious this salvation that he's given me. But it's God who works in me, the next verse, to both desire and to act according to his purpose. When God says to you in the New Testament, here's what I want you to do. Don't set out to go do it. He's already shown you how you do it. You humble yourself and say, I can't. But apart from you, I can do nothing. But you can do it. And you will, and you'll change my heart. And I want that. Lord, I'm struggling with forgiveness. I need to forgive this person. You do it. But I surrender, and I give it to you. Change my heart, oh God. Remember that song? Change my heart, oh God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God. Make me be like you. I'm the pot, I mean, you're the potter, I'm the clay. All the way through the scriptures, he has been teaching us all along. What does God want from us? Humbly say, it's you and not me. I'm not living for self anymore. I'm living for you. But I can't live for you. I've tried. Anybody tried to live for God? How'd that work out? But when you say, you know what? I couldn't save myself. But then God showed me that my righteousness was as filthy rags, and I couldn't do it, and I needed someone else to do it. I humbled myself, and I said, Lord Jesus, if I'm going to get to heaven, you have to give it to me, and my life is yours. The problem is we have not been taught that the rest of the Christian life continues in the same way. Colossians 2.6, in the same way in which you received Jesus as Lord, walk in him. What has Ezekiel shown us? God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to be saved. God doesn't judge the righteous for the sins of the wicked. Each one will die for their own sins. But he even said, if you at the end of your life will turn from your wickedness and turn to righteousness, you'll live. Well, how do we turn? We go to the one that can cast away our sins, the one who will forgive us from everything and wash us clean and give us a new heart and a new spirit. And once he's done that, has he left us all to do it, to do it on our own now? Live for Jesus? No. His mercies are new every morning. His steadfast love continues every day. And let me close with this. As a parent, some of you have kids that are away from the Lord. And because they're away from the Lord, they're probably away from you. 
There might be some of you that have kids, you don't have a good relationship with them right now. I can promise you if your heart is where it belongs, you have a heart for that child right now, don't you? Don't you wish that you could be there? Don't you wish you could reach out to them? You've even probably got some money that they could use, but you know it wouldn't help them to just give them money right now, but you sure would love to be involved in their life, and you would love to bless, and you would love to be there, and you have a heart to just take care, nurture, don't you? But the thing that's keeping them from letting you do that is the fact that they've put a wall up between you and them. And you have to wait until they humble themselves and say, Mom, Dad, I need you. What will be your attitude the second your kid does that? <laughs> Buddy, you will bust in their direction, won't you? You won't even wait for the rest of the story. That's the heart of God toward each of us as well. Don't do it on your own. Let him do it through you. I love you. We'll see you in two weeks.